Hello and welcome to A Future Made. I'm Anna Pajajski, a material scientist and writer. And I'm Robbie Armstrong, a reporter and journalist. Together, we are bringing you A Future Made, a podcast by Heriot Watt University. In the series, we find out how pioneering research at Heriot Watt University in the fields of science, business, psychology, technology, design, engineering, and sport is helping to change the future, solve the problems of today, and make an impact on the global stage. Today, we'll be talking all about the discovery of an asteroid crater by academics from the university's School of Energy, Geoscience, Infrastructure and Society. We'll speak to Ustjan Nicholson and Professor Thomas Wagner, two academics who found evidence of this asteroid impact crater beneath the North Atlantic Ocean. Plus, we'll chat to a Harriet Watt alumnus. Right, Anna, this is a very exciting story that made global news when it was first reported. You know, it was on the TV, it was on the radio, there were stories picked up across the globe. So it's obviously monumental and has huge potential if it's proven to be true. All right, so what do you know about asteroids then, Anna? My understanding from asteroids comes from the materials science perspective, surprise, surprise, because the materials that we find coming from space to Earth are very different from ones that we can find on Earth. And they can have some quite interesting and unexpected outcomes. So when I was writing the steel chapter of my book, I read about an Inuit population in the northwest of Greenland in the middle of the 8th century. These Inuit people, they found fragments of a meteorite that had fallen from space. And the material of this meteorite was unlike anything that they had ever found on Earth before. This material was almost pure iron. And in the Earth's crust, we don't get almost pure iron. It's always been reacted with oxygen because we have oxygen in our atmosphere on Earth. But out there in space, there is no oxygen atmosphere. And so you can get pure iron as this asteroid was. So it fell to Earth. And these Inuit in the middle of the 8th century, they found this material that had come from space. And it was like the most useful, amazing, unusual thing. And so they made tools and weaponry out of this iron. By the middle of the 12th century, the populations had started to migrate. But because they were from originally from a place that had this very particular type of technology, i.e. the material from space, they took that those materials with them when they migrated. And so scientists and historians have been able to track the migratory pathway of this Inuit population in the 8th to the 12th century. What is almost as fascinating as a meteorite falling from space with iron that an Inuit population fashioned into tools is the fact that scientists actually worked out that they did that and then where they moved to next. I mean, it's just completely mind-boggling. Let's jump back to the Nadir crater now. And I've got a few facts for you. So it's 8.5 kilometres wide and it's buried three to 400 metres below the seabed, 400 kilometres off the coast of Guinea in West Africa. Okay. So the team basically believed that this crater was caused by a 400 metre wide asteroid colliding with Earth around 66 million years ago. And that is the same time, around the same time that Chicxulub also hit, wiping out the dinosaurs, we think. Oh, wow. Okay, so these are separate events. This isn't the dinosaur-killing asteroid 
but there must have been something happening that was meaning that a lot of asteroids were hitting Earth at the same time. Is that right? They're not entirely sure yet. This is theoretical, and I guess we will get into it in a bit, but mm. they fell within a, a very, very short period of each other to the Earth. The supposition is that they are linked somehow. Mm. So basically, they're going to need to drill into the seabed and collect samples to prove their theory. We'll come back to that. We're going to hear from Ustjan Nicholson shortly, but first let's bring in Thomas Wagner. Professor Thomas Wagner, he is a professor of Earth System Sciences at the Lyell Centre at Heriot Watt. And here he is explaining the importance of this discovery and the unique setting of this crater. It sits off the West African coastline in a close to tropical region. And at the time when this meteorite potentially smashed into this offshore coast before West Africa, it was surrounded by an ocean which was particularly unique in the storage of carbon. And that is quite an interesting observation because there may be a link between an impact and the mobilization of carbon associated with that from the surrounding environments. So the Guinea Plateau, where we propose that crater actually sits uh, or is surrounded by deep ocean basins in the north and the south, and it sits very close to the equator. And the equator at the time, back at the transition between the Cretaceous and the Paleogene, was actually pretty much closed before that in the Cretaceous time period. And the opening history of that, what we call the Equatorial Atlantic Gateway, is of big importance for oceanography, for ocean current development, climate development, and with the opening of the Equatorial Atlantic Gateway, just south of our location, the level of oxygen in the water column had fundamentally changed. And that is important. So before the opening of the Equatorial Gateway, which is today the big mighty Equatorial Atlantic, a couple of thousand kilometers from West Africa over to Brazil, the ocean was pretty much, our ocean circulation was heavily reduced and that led to a very unique situation where probably nutrients were trapped in the region where our proposed crater impact is and that led to the formation of very unique dark organic carbon-rich shale sediments and these shale sediments we call them black shale they are actually the source rocks of petroleum and oil which we are recovering today. So both the West African but also the Brazilian side are prone to have petroleum systems and most of us we are probably aware of that. So these are very very hot spots for petroleum generation or gas generation. And that all relates to these old organic carbon rich sediments which were formed during that period when basically the early equatorial gateway was not yet opened. Okay, this is fascinating. I feel like I don't have a good enough understanding of how rocks work, <laughs> how earth science works to really properly understand it. But the long and short of it is that, as I understand it, the arrival of this asteroid and its impact and how it changed ocean currents and how it reduced the circulation of water in the Atlantic Ocean formed these little microclimates of nutrients in the water that were very carbon rich. And that carbon we now use as fossil fuel energy source. And it was that bringing to the surface and kind of changing of the chemistry of the seabed and the chemistry of the ocean around it that 
laid the groundwork for us to be able to drill up so many fossil fuels today. These kinds of stories always blow my mind a little bit. It sort of demonstrates how fragile life on Earth is. Obviously, the wiping out of the dinosaurs is a, is a huge example of that. But even the impact of something that is completely without our control changes so much about life on Earth. And, you know, not only then, 66 million years ago, but also today and how we're changing the climate. It's, it kind of demonstrates how interlinked it all is. The interesting question is, did the impact actually had an impact on the carbon which was stored down there in the deep subsurface or not? We don't know that. Was it a more local event? Was it a more regional event? What do these organic carbon-rich deep sea sediments actually tell us about the wider environment in that region? So the crater itself is a unique feature and worth studying but it has a wider context which links with a time period in the Cretaceous when the ocean was heavily depleted in dissolved oxygen. And oxygen obviously is important for higher life, for any higher life. So a very unique and different ocean basins which was capable to store enormous amounts of organic carbon. And we want to study that relationship between that Cretaceous stinking ocean, which formed the black, the black shale, and then a big smash of a meteorite into that area. And how did that actually relate to each other? So I think what he's hinting at, and probably academically tactfully not going all the way towards saying, is that, and I'm going to butcher this now, this asteroid impact had a direct influence on sort of life on Earth. When he's talking about higher... What did he say? Like higher, not higher animals, but higher life. Yeah. Oxygen, the oxygen content. Yeah. Exactly. That's to do with like, yeah, complex organisms, plants and animals that were, were not, that are only able to exist because of the presence of oxygen. So when he's saying that before this point, there wasn't much oxygen in the ocean, to me, that implies that that means that there wasn't much life. And then there was this event. And then after that point, there was more oxygen. And then after that point, that enabled life to flourish more. The context, the wider context, is you look at the depletion of oxygen in our oceans and the impact that has on biodiversity today. So lessons from these big changes in the past can hopefully tell us what might happen in the future. Yes, exactly right, which is very important for us to know. I think it's probably high time that we discussed how they actually discovered this extraordinary crater. So we're going to bring in Dr. Ustjan Nicholson, an associate professor of geoscience at Heriot Watt University. He's a geologist who mainly uses something called seismic reflection data. So this is where they, they, they basically grab geophysical information acquired mostly by ships or sound waves that are transmitted into and then reflect back off of the ground below the seabed. Mm. And he uses this to answer questions about what the Earth looked like in the ancient past and what the climate and oceans were like as well. And this should help us inform how the Earth will react in the future, like we were just talking about. Mm. So he told me that he will investigate basically anything that he can find. And the funny thing was that this discovery happened by a happy accident. 
So he and some other researchers had been looking into the tectonic evolution of this area offshore of West Africa with colleagues who were on the opposite margin in Brazil. And they were trying to answer questions about the tectonic evolution of the area and how South America separated from Africa in the Cretaceous period and then the impact that this had on the global climate too. At this particular interval, at this particular depth, with, the, with this particular age of sediments, everything should have been very flat-lying, very kind of continuous and not deformed by tectonics or anything else. But there was one area in the middle of that where there was this deep bowl-shaped feature, cr crater-shaped feature, for want of a better word. I tried not to use the expression too much straight away. There was no ready explanation for what caused this. There are a number of processes that can cause crater-like features in the seabed, but none of them seem to fit here. And so my mind kind of wondered as it does to, to, well, could it have been an impact crater? Could it have been an asteroid? Do the characteristics fit what we would expect for an asteroid impact crater of this size? So what, you know, the, the ratio of the depth of the crater versus the width of it. Some of the features that you see immediately below the crater, uh, where the sediments below the crater are really deformed and contorted and uplifted. So all of these things seem to fit more or less what we would expect to see in it for an impact crater. And at that point, my powers of deductive reasoning had reached their <laughs> their limit. So I went, I got, uh, I got in touch with a couple of specialists, really, in, in impact cratering, from the University of Arizona and the University of Texas at Austin. One of whom has worked on Chicxulub, which is the famous dinosaur-killing impact crater in Mexico. And the other of whom is a like a modeler, a numerical modeler who, who built computer simulations of craters. Yeah, on first sight, they were very enthusiastic about this. They thought this definitely looks like a very good candidate impact crater. And then, of course, we went through the steps of, of um, building the numerical models and seeing whether we could replicate what we saw, and, and, and indeed we could. From my side, it's really interpreting the data, trying to understand what also the age, which turned out to be quite interesting in, in this case. Uh, and then just describing the morphology, describing the shape, describing the, the, the structural characteristics of it, and then it all seemed to fit. So they had a theory which was, this is an asteroid crater, a hunch, a scientific hunch. Mm -hmm. They got the data, they got some help, they did the sums, they ran the math, and they confirmed that their hunch was true. They went as far as they possibly could in confirming that their hunch was true, but now need to drill into the seabed in order to take samples to prove their theory without any doubt, I guess. Ah, I see. So just because it looks like a crater and smells like a crater, it could be something else, unless they actually go there and check. Which sounds quite difficult on the seabed. Some of the things that they were looking for, which I thought were quite interesting, I mean, I obviously have no idea about geology or anything, but the particular features that he was alluding to, it has a raised rim and a very prominent central uplift. So that is one of the things that we're looking for, for a large impact crater. Mm. And then they also can see something that looks like ejecta outside of the crater mm. with these chaotic sedimentary deposits extending for tens of kilometres outside of the crater. So, you know, they can almost imagine this asteroid hitting Earth and then the impact that that would have on on what is now the seabed, you know, and is and has been sort of encased under the under under the ocean. Yeah, so it's a bit like forensics really. You know, you there there was an event that you assume happened in the past and you're looking for evidence of what that event was and what happened. 
Um, and in this case, yeah, they're looking for the after effects of that, the way that the rock was kind of shattered and then, I guess, almost like splashed, <laughs> splashed through the ocean as a result of that enormous impact. And, you know, terms like deductive reasoning as well, like the mm. way that Ushjan is talking about his process, this elimination process, which is quite interesting. But it also seems quite like pure science almost and having a theory and then trying to stress test it and find the evidence to either prove or disprove it. And then giving your academic theory up to other academics to review it and criticise it and to try and find mm. alternative explanations. Exactly. Yes, exactly. To kind of challenge those assumptions to make sure that you've thought of everything. Thing. We'll be back with more stories from Harriet Watts School of Energy, Geoscience, Infrastructure and Society in just a moment. But first, we're going to hear from a Harriet Watt graduate about how being at the university has given them new and brilliant opportunities out there in the real world. Here's alumna Rachel Brackenridge. Hello, my name is Rachel Brackenridge and I'm a lecturer in geology. I teach a lot about energy systems and energy geoscience, uh, but my research focuses on this, but also deep marine sedimentary systems, including the distribution of microplastics in our oceans. One of the things I find most interesting about working in the deep ocean is how little we actually know about the deep ocean. There's a saying that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do the seabed. So I love that unknown and it gives me room as a geoscientist to fill in the gaps in our knowledge. So I came to Harriet Watt in 2008 to do an MSc in Petroleum Geoscience and then went on to do a PhD at the same institute in Marine and Petroleum Geoscience. My PhD examined sands that were deposited in the deep ocean under the influence of ocean currents. And it looked to understand if these could make potential oil reservoirs. As part of this, I examined the modern seabed offshore Spain to understand how ocean currents were controlling the sediment distribution and character there. And the absolute highlight of my PhD was getting to go offshore Spain to collect these seabed samples myself. My time at Harry Watts definitely helped prepare me for my current role as a lecturer through the research training that I received at Harry Watt. And it also exposed me to a great network of other researchers in other disciplines that I still hold today. Since leaving Harriet Watt, I've had a number of different roles, including working in industry. I was an exploration geologist with Shell for a number of years, and then I came back into research. But the common theme has always been this marine geoscience that was really built during my PhD. And if you want to find out more about becoming a Harriet Watt student, you can visit their website at www.hw.ac.uk. All right, so speaking of alumni there, Anna, Nahed Mansour is a Palestinian refugee and a humanitarian, and she recently graduated with distinction from Harriet Watt University, so thought we would just mention that. She's 34 years old, and she's been working as a humanitarian for over a decade, and most recently, she's been helping survivors of the Beirut explosion. Mm. And... It's, it's really, I mean, testament to just the resilience of her spirit, you know, and the incredible achievements she made. But she was actually unable to travel to Edinburgh to accept the scroll because she lives at the Lebanese Badawi refugee camp with her parents and seven sisters. Oh my gosh, wow, that really puts a lot into perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, so it was part of this, an MBA that was delivered by Edinburgh Business School with Harriet Watt University, as well as the children's charity Their World. 
So yeah, I mean, a fantastic project and a fantastic achievement. You're listening to A Future Made, a podcast from Harriet Bott University with Anna Pajajski and Robbie Armstrong. So far, we've been hearing from academics at Harriet Watt who've discovered a potentially game-changing asteroid crater. Still to come, we'll hear what the next steps are and discuss whether it was really a single asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs. Here is Ustjan on what needs to happen next to confirm their theory. The exact genesis of the feature, right? The, the exact for- process that formed it uh, and the age of it, in order to to test the kind of hypothesis that we've we've constructed, that it's an impact crater in the first place, number one, and that it is the same age or uh, give or take uh, a few hundred thousand years, the same age as that, that, that killed the dinosaurs. We have to go and physically collect samples from the crater floor. The only way you can do that is to get a drill ship um, that's capable of drilling in deep water and to, to drill down into the crater and recover sediment cores or rock cores from the crater floor. The reason for that, there are diagnostic minerals that form under extreme pressures that that only occur during asteroid impacts or or comet impacts. So like quartz, for example, the molecular structure of it's changed under those pressures. So you get these kind of shocked quartz with certain features, certain characteristics that are diagnostic. So we can, the only way we can, we can test for that is to recover the physical samples to, to look for evidence of those minerals. Uh, and and then once we do that, then you can confirm that it is in, indeed an impact crater. But also the age resolution of the seismic is is quite coarse, so we can't we can't really pin down the exact age um, from the data that we have. So again, getting physical samples from the crater floor would allow us to date it much more precisely and test these hypotheses. The the thing I said to Ustjan when I heard this was it it reminded me of my own experience of getting my first flat and the fact that it just did not feel real and it didn't matter what my mortgage advisor uh, said and what happened with the sale of the flat. I was like, I want the keys in my hand. Once they're in the door and I'm in my flat, it will then feel real and I can celebrate. Mm. And I feel like he is sort of waiting for the keys to his flat because (laughs) it doesn't matter how real it would appear you know, he needs to find this high pressurized quartz and feldspar and they need to drill through a kilometer of water and 400 meters of sediment that they need to drill through in order to get those samples. So there's still a big hurdle to to pass before they can really prove that. And they've got to embark on this mad sort of journey with the International Ocean Discovery Programme. So they've submitted a proposal with them and they've been around for 50 years and they've done some amazing science over the last half century. So they will basically go out on this ship and they will hire out this drill ship for seven days and, you know, they'll go on this, you know, big, big discovery to drill down um, into the crater floor and recover these samples. Wow, yeah. Imagine that feeling of having this scientific hunch, having to invest all of that time and effort into backing it up and then that feeling when you've got the completely undeniable evidence at the end of it must feel really great. Towards the end of the time when I wrote the paper, I got access to uh, or some limited access to a three-dimensional data set, which I'm now working on, which shows the crater in much more clarity. So, you know, then at that point you see, okay, it's definitely circular and it's the features are consistent all the way, you know, in three dimensions, not just in this limited data that I have here. I have that bit data is not in the paper yet, but at least as the pa- I think I 
foresaw that first when the paper has been reviewed, and that's like that massive wave of assurance, reassurance that it's not complete, uh, complete nonsense, you know. But you know, I've had this, some discussions as we've gone through the process of writing this drilling proposal. Again, like what if, what if it isn't an impact crater when we when we spend uh, three million dollars to get down there and recover samples from there, and then what what do we do with that then? And uh, and actually the. I think the consensus is like whatever we find down there will be really interesting because whatever made this big crater is we we still can't really think of another legitimate process that can explain it. But if there is something else, then that's also interesting. The the bigger the impact that this story has, the more the the slight discomfort and nerve nervousness comes in about whether the what if you're wrong kind of scenario, you know. So, um, yeah, that mixture of, of excitement and, and uh, uncertainty. But that's a lovely silver lining that he's picked up on as well. Like, in science, even if your hypothesis turns out to be false, you know, you turn out to be wrong in your hunch, quite often then that can lead to an even more exciting and impactful and potentially career-defining next step. I guess for him it could be a win-win situation, although I'm sure, like we said, it will feel pretty good if it turns out that his hunch was actually right all along. So Tom explains that there is an existing theory that it wasn't one crater, impact crater or asteroid Chicxulub, but a series of them which killed off the dinosaurs. And I guess the, the potential link between Chicxulub and Nadir could suggest that there is a breakup of a parent asteroid or even a flux of asteroids around mm. this time period. The plot thickens. Now, the tricky part is to properly date the impact. So this is a key scientific challenge to put a, an accurate age against it to ensure it's really exactly the same time period or was it earlier, was it slightly later? I mean, that is something which we need to find out. And the other thing is, of course, that the Caribbean region where Chicxulub ultimately hit the Earth was a completely different setting. It was not as anoxic. It was not storing these enormous amounts of carbon. So that must have had a very different impact on the wider environment in comparison to what we may expect to see when we study the Nadia crater in more detail. Right, and here's Tom again on why this study, the research, is so interesting for them. Studying the Nadia combines different components of our Earth system without natural, our human impact, basically. So we are here combining external forces like meteorites hitting our surface of the Earth. We are linking it with large-scale tectonic processes, which is, for example, the opening of the Equatorial Atlantic Gateway as one of the major thresholds in changing global climate for good into today, ultimately. And it links, of course, also with the history of life and the crisis which may be associated with life. So somehow this study combines different aspects of Earth sciences in its very broad way, and at the same time, it provides new constraints about carbon and carbon cycling, carbon storage capacities or mobilization capacities, which, of course, we need when we start looking into the future. You called it, Anna. Yes. I love being right. <laughs> <laughs> carbon is 
so central to the key problem of climate change that we're facing now. So understanding how the Earth has captured carbon in the past has, you know, held on to it and then being able to study where can we put the excess carbon that we keep producing? We can look back in history of the history of the earth and kind of see where it's been before, what the impact of that was on life, as we've as we've already talked about, and then start making some quite huge decisions about how we're going to get ourselves out of this slight pickle that we seem to have created for ourselves. Slight pickle. I've never heard <laughs> the climate crisis being referred to so euphemistically. <laughs> but there's loads of stuff. There's loads of stuff like this that you know we can learn from the deep sea ocean. Um, deep sea mining is a massive topic at the moment, and it all comes down to sustainability and you know using our planet respectfully and efficiently and sustainably as possible. The impacts of deep sea mining are very, very different from mining on Earth. It affects communities in very, very different ways. The law around it is very, very different. So all of these new frontiers in you know, understanding what's going on beneath our ocean waters have such huge implications on how we're going to live as a species going forward, if indeed we are. Okay, the stakes couldn't be higher. Thanks for listening to A Future Made. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss an episode. Just search for A Future Made. Or you can head over to Harriet Watt University's website at hw.ac.uk.